Normally, I would open by welcoming you all to Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts great comics works and some pretty great comics scholars into conversation with each other. But since we're evil now, I'd like you to know that you are not welcome to Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts stupid children's fare into dialogue with other stupid children's fare, through the floundering analysis of some merciless hacks unfit to teach the infinite nuances of even the laziest Garfield comic strip. Should we even get started? You know what? Fine. So some of you might have missed us last month when um, we we weren't here. Um, For anyone not in the academic field, uh, May and June are monsters uh, when students are usually enjoying their, you know, start of their summer vacation and the pressure's off. Every academic conference and like deadline comes up simultaneously and we were not able to get the panel together. Um, So we're coming a little bit late this month. We apologize for the absence, but uh, we're here now. Uh, and we have some really cool comics to talk about uh, and a lot of evil to talk about, which should be <laughs> fun. Uh, so joining me today, I'm Dr. J. Andrew Demand from the University of Waterloo St. Charles campus, uh, is Dr. Michael Hancock. That's right. Uh, I am an instructor at Wilfrid Laurier University and the University of Waterloo. And Dr. Anna Papard. Hi, um, I, where do I even work anymore? I'm technically still a sessional instructor at Brock University, and I'm doing some work for Sheridan University and a whole lot of writing for a whole lot of different places. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about um, Darth Vader by Kieran Gillen and Salvador La Roca. Uh, in contrast with um, Doctor Doom and Doctor Strange, Triumph and Torment, starring Doctor Doom and Doctor Strange, um, written by Roger Stern and art by the um, famous Mike Mignola. Uh, so maybe the best place to get us going is just with our introduction to our respective texts. Um, Michael, what can you tell us about Darth Vader? I remember watching Star Wars A New Hope for the first time. I was 10 years old, it was 1993, and long after its 1977 debut, I settled down to finally see the legend through from the very beginning, at least the beginning at the time, and to my jaded 10-year-old sensibilities, it was too slow, too boring, and worst of all, too old. Note, however, this is far from my first encounter with Star Wars. My favorite pillow at the time was an Empire Strikes Back original from that was older than I was. I still remember fondly the droids and Ewok cartoons. I jealously guarded my Wookiee action figure (laughs) and my engagement didn't stop there. Two years from this point, my middle brother would get a model Millennium Falcon, a source of perpetual strife between siblings. I'd play the video games Dark Forces and Shadow of the Empire so often, I'd literally go through segments of the games in my sleep. As a teen, the Galaxy of Fear books combined my burgeoning love of sci-fi and horror. And when I was away from home and attending university, I started to devour as many of the novels as I could, from the courtship of Princess Leia to the invasion of the Yuzang Wong. But note, I'm also not saying that I enjoyed all of this. Most of it hit good enough at best, but it was always a comfort to be able to return to these characters and this world over and over again. My point by bringing this up is that the Star Wars franchise has always been deeply transmedial and deeply paratextual, and participating with these texts became part of the background tapestry of my life. It may not be great, but it was always there, and sometimes that's good enough. 
As you might imagine then, I had mixed feelings when it was announced in 2014 that Lucasfilm would be starting on episodes seven through nine and everything but the movies and the Clone War cartoons, which I hadn't even watched, would be relegated to the dust heap of the non-canonical. Thus, when Marvel picked up the reins of the Star Wars comics in 2015, they had a series of metatextual issues to face. Hmm. They were suddenly dealing with a very blank slate, but the future was too unknown to venture far into, and the past of the Clone Wars and prequels too full. The fans of the previous Star Wars comics had just seen everything go up in smoke, and the rest of their audience wasn't familiar with anything much beyond the films anyway. The solution was an appropriate one for a paratext whose meaning depends on a larger work. The comics would be set in the interstices between episodes four and five. Jason Aaron and John Cassidy were the creative team for the main series featuring the Rebels, and Kieran Gillen and Salvador LaRocca launched the second series featuring the titular character Darth Vader. As writer, Gillen has the unusual task of writing for a character whose past, future, and a great deal of present is already set in stone. Any typical reader would know how he became Darth Vader and know his ultimate fate. Gillen takes that metatextual knowledge and makes it the chief driving force of the plot. We know that Vader will go from the force is strong in this one to Luke, I am your father. This series, at least initially, is largely about how we get there. Over the course of the first 12 issues or so, Vader puts together an investigative team, a match of fortune, gathers a private army, and moves out of the Emperor's thumb, all to answer the question of who Luke is to him. Consequently, the series is dripping with dramatic irony, as the characters slowly learn or fail to learn what the typical reader already knows. Wisely, Gillen keeps us fairly distant from Vader, his presence marked by silence as much or more than speech. Instead, we spend most of our time with the series' other metatextual feature, an inversion of the Star Wars crew featuring two murderous robots, a vicious Wookiee, and the smooth-talking rogue adventurer and all-around breakout character, Dr. Afra. To be honest, I kind of lose track of the story-to-story plots at points of the story. And LaRocca's art is striking, but often static. There are excellent set pieces and banter and dramatic moments, but the stitching between them can be a bit thin at times. It's not sometimes great, but not always. It is always good enough. As a final thought, Star Wars is dead. Long live Star Wars. <laughs> Hashtag give Dr. Afra a movie, you cowards. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Uh, and Anna, can you run us through Doom and Strange's iconic team up? I sure can. So Roger Stern and Mike Mignola's Doctor Strange and Doctor Doom Triumph and Torment is like one of those stories you hear about a lot when you're getting into Marvel comics, or at least I did. It's one of those iconic Doctor Doom stories with almost a where were you when vibe. People remember the conclusion of the story as an all time great character defining twist. Um, I've known all of this for some time, and yet this is actually my first time reading this comic. And I have to say it did not disappoint. So let's go over some plot details for those of you who may not know the story or remember it well. The comic opens in the secluded cave of the aged Genghis, a mystic with considerable power and a shaky grasp of reality. He tells his caretaker a rambling story about encountering Victor Von Doom and Doctor Strange many years ago, until suddenly the light aligns just so through the roof of his cave, signaling the one time every 100 years when the aged Genghis's faculties fully return. It is the age of the Vishanti. 
A summons is heard by magic users around the world, drawing them to the Temple of Three in the Indonesian jungle, where they're told a tournament is to be held to decide who will become the official Sorcerer Supreme. Doctor Strange and Doctor Doom are among those summoned and quickly distinguish themselves from the competition. Strange through his mastery of magic, Doom through his combination of science and magic. Strange wins the tournament, but is told by the Vishanti, one of whom is a tiger, it's pretty awesome, that he owes the runner-up a boon. Strange initially refuses, sure Doom will seek suffering or world domination. Instead, he asks for Strange's help rescuing his mother's soul from the clutches of Mephisto in hell. Strange accepts. These new bosom buddies train for a while at Doom's castle and then set off for hell. There, they immediately encounter Mephisto, then fight a murder of crows and survive a hellish sandstorm and fight their own inner demons, along with lots and lots of actual physical demons, which is never boring with Mike Mignola handling art. For a while, Strange and Doom are a swell team, but before long, Doom betrays Strange, sacrificing him for the promise of saving his mother. Mephisto makes Cynthia Von Doom a new body and gives that body her soul, resurrecting her. But when Cynthia finds out what her son has done to free her, she rejects him and her body becomes a pillar of stone. Strange and Doom team up again to take on Mephisto until Strange has a mad plan. He destroys Cynthia's stone body, releasing the pure light of her redeemed soul. This finally succeeds in hurting Mephisto and liberating Cynthia. Though Mephisto is more than capable of killing Strange and Doom, doing so would would not gain him their souls. So he releases them back to the realm of the living to fight another day. Strange sympathizes with Doom's loss. He had to sacrifice his mother's love to free her. Then he realizes Doom knew that and did everything on purpose. He always intended to betray Strange, then manipulate Strange goodness, Strange's goodness rather, to allow his mother's inevitable rejection to both free her and them. Strange departs with a new respect and wariness of the mighty and mysterious Doctor Doom. This is an all-time great Doctor Strange and Doctor Doom comic that has, I would say, pretty th much everything you want from a team-up with the characters' personalities, strengths, and weaknesses playing off each other in ways that help us understand both of them better. It's also, of course, a visually spectacular series, which you expect with Mignola drawing hell. His style isn't as purely gloriously abstract as it will become in the later Hellboy comics, but it's still pretty darn nice, especially within the final reality-warping battle with Mephisto and his demons. There's always stuff to criticize, but also I look forward to talking more about why this comic is great and maybe choosing some of our favorite runner-ups from that sorcerer competition. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, okay, so a lot of points of comparison between these two texts. I, I think there's maybe more parallels than we might even expect. But the obvious one that we're kind of working with here today most prominently is just this idea of taking iconic villain characters uh, and really parting them from their usual function but like both vader and doom were designed to be detestable characters heavies if you will now obviously vader as michael has already pointed out is going to get his redemption arc and we know doom is going to get a series of redemption arcs um thereafter because that's just the cycle marvel goes through with its villains but as a as a general approach or strategy here how do you think that these stories are doing in terms of trying to make your antagonist a protagonist if that is what they're doing or at least sympathetic to some degree how do you build narratives around these iconic villains well i feel like i'm already wanting to jump in and stand dr doom a little bit since the nature of his villainy to me is quite different than the nature of vader's villainy like doom is a bad guy who's done like a lot of bad things but He's not arguably just like the genocidal, I want to kill everybody maniac that like Vader technically is based on well, the things that he's done. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> Doom has like literally killed personal painters so that no one else can look on the yes, work that's again. True. That kind of thing. I don't know. 
I just like, do you perceive them as different types of characters, Michael? It's just that Doom has um, always had like a complex set of personal motives that make you sympathetic to him. And I'm not familiar with like a lot of the Star Wars, like wider universe stuff. So like that just has never been my perception of Vader because he doesn't have a lot of backstory in those original movies. And obviously we get mm -hmm. the like new movies that, you know, give him all that context and everything, but we didn't have that back then. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm completely off base. <laughs> oh no, actually I... I absolutely agree with you. Um, I know some people uh, who were upset at episode seven and Kylo Ren taking on kind of the Vader mantle, but also being a bit of a petulant child. And they're like, that's not Vader. And I'm like, have you watched those original <laughs> movies? Because that's, that's kind of Vader. <laughs> I think for me personally, one of the interesting distinctions between the two of them is... is and this is just my read on Vader, and as Michael's already said, like like later versions contradict it. I always thought Vader was kind of a tool, specifically because he wanted to be a tool. Do you know what I mean? He, he didn't want that responsibility of leadership. He wasn't capable of it. He yeah. doesn't make good decisions. He just wanted to be pointed at the fight. Uh, and, and that's how he got corrupted. Whereas Doom, as Anna says, is like really trying to provide leadership. He wants to create a unified world. The question is just his methods. So is there kind of a, like power differential between the two of them, or at least the way that they approach power in my eyes? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Because, I mean, that's a dynamic that we see explored in the Vader series, too. I mean, he gets talked about in that way that he doesn't have the vision for leadership and stuff, right? That he isn't going to be that leadership character, which is totally the opposite of Doctor Doom, who definitely has that going on. But yeah, doesn't approach those things in the most productive way. Yeah, with the added irony that like, in the process of labeling him as the one who doesn't have that kind of vision, it sort of prompts him towards it, finally. Yeah, which may or may not be like a leadership strategy on the part of the Emperor. But I do think it, it speaks to the, the fundamental character dynamic that we see in Darth Vader, which is making you empathize with him, or at least, again, sympathize with him, specifically because he's like a dog and his master is looking at another puppy. Do you know oh, what I mean? Yeah. And making you feel bad for him in terms of being rejected. But as Michael says, that that's a simplistic interpretation because, again, he is finding and demonstrating his own agency very dramatically behind the scenes. Well, I mean, this is maybe too much of a tangent, but I mean, I think maybe some of my not really understanding the motives is coming from me not really understanding the way the Star Wars universe works on certain fundamental levels. I've never understood the political context of the story. I don't really understand what the Empire is. <laughs> doing or why I don't think does. I get that they're mm -hmm. oppressive but i don't really understand which political ideas they represent or anything My, so it's hard for me to read yeah. the nature of vader's villainy since i'm not really sure what's going on my understanding is if you watch six seasons of a cartoon <laughs> then it all makes a lot of sense Yes, that's what I'm told as well. I mean, I remember a lot of sort of scenes of people arguing in a Senate chamber in the newer movies, but I, I don't, I still don't feel like Thrilling I learned cinema. a lot about, about what the political context is here. Because like, again, I get that they're oppressive, but like knowing in what ways they're oppressive and like how and why, like what built this empire? Like, was it an ethnic conflict? Like, was it a financial conflict? Was it about resources? Like not knowing that? sort of is a hamper to me like feeling whether I should have sympathy for Vader or not because I don't really get what he represents other than bad. My partner rewatched the prequels recently and my understanding is that it is Jar Jar's fault. <laughs> yeah. 
okay. <laughs> like literally, he votes the he he leads yeah. the casts the vote that turns down the republic in favor of a like totalitarian regime. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's not. There's a weird gap between the prequels and the uh, original series in terms of you can s you literally see how the character gets from point A to point B, but it doesn't, like the emotional depth that that took doesn't really come together. And I think this this series is trying to do what it can with that. Yeah, because we've seen McGillan before. This is a very talented writer. It, I think this is his most heavier on action, lighter on ideas than pretty much anything I've seen from him. Yeah, yeah. Which it isn't bad. It's just very different than his usual uh, approach. Yeah. Well, maybe to, to, to focus this in a little bit, what do you think we as the readers are, are rooting for? Are, are we rooting for the villain to be redeemed? Or are we rooting for the villain to be villainous so we can revel in that power fantasy? I mean, this is a good place to sort of push to Dr. Doom, who can, I think, maybe be read more variably. What's your take on that, Anna? Yeah, I have a lot of questions about that with Star Wars fandom in general, because there is a lot of fandom of the villains. And it's always struck me as strange mm. since they're called stormtroopers and stuff. And I've always been <laughs> a little bit uncomfortable with that. And like, I get that it's just a fantasy space and this doesn't connect to reality. And yet they're called stormtroopers. So I've always had questions about that. And with Vader, it feels like we're setting up a space in which nobody is any good. So you don't care when he kills people. I mean, he's right. killing people that aren't people that you care about anyway. I mean, they're people who are just sleazebags and they're not redeemable sleazebags because they don't have like the vision and just coolness that Vader has. So, I mean, you're set up in this consequence-free space effectively. You know, if anybody dies, that's not a, a scuzz bag. It just happens like off panel and we don't care about it. Well, yeah. And Doom and Strange are literally slaughtering demons, right? So same, yeah. same approach. Yeah, I think the exception is we are supposed to care about Afra, mm -hmm. yeah, that that's interesting. As you mentioned, like her breakout has been pretty large. Maybe the most successful thing Marvel Comics has done with with certainly with the Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't want to speak to that too much since I just don't know the larger context of the Star Wars fandom and stuff. But I was just assuming, like, I saw this like cool female character show up, and I'm like, oh, this character must be hated by fans, right? And I'm like, oh, she's not. <laughs> that's surprising because that's not what I would expect. So, so what about Doom, Anna? Do you think that you are supposed to see him as redeemed? Like, what is the balance that's being struck? Because he's given this fighting for my mommy thing, but again, his methods are cheating and deceiving and killing and all this kind of stuff. Are you enjoying watching him be bad, or are you hoping for him to turn good? I think it strikes such a great balance in this comic because he goes through incredible pain and trauma of like having to be rejected by his mother, but you're totally okay with that because you're not really supposed to like Doom. You like him to the extent that he is this guy that is going after what he wants, that he is this guy who, you know, refuses to show pain and weakness and, you know, you feel his pain and weakness through his, like, unwillingness to show pain and weakness. So there's yeah. the sympathy There's the sympathy for him on that level. But I think that the great thing about Doom is that I don't care if he gets hurt or punished or whatever. Put him through whatever you want. I'm happy with that because he's a terrible person and, you know... <laughs> 
he's just a useful character in that sense. And partnering him with someone like Doctor Strange, who is, you know, a hero, but he's a complicated hero too, because he's dealing with sort of cosmic conflicts and sometimes is a little bit divorced from human realities as well, is like a really good sort of modulator for him. Because again, we get that sort of contrast of heroism that Strange is more of our point of view character in the comic and he's sort of observing what Doctor Doom is doing. But yeah, I don't know. I don't feel like I'm answering that question well, but I don't think we're supposed to like, yeah. I don't, th I wouldn't call it a, a, a doom redemption story so much as just it's giving us a context for his villainy that allows us to understand it a little bit more complexly. But I don't think I want doom to turn into like a good guy or a hero because that would erase everything that's interesting about him. Yeah. What this is maybe, I mean, I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of the character up to this point, but I think this is one of his more, at least at this point in his character history, one of his more heroic moments. And I, I, again, not caught up on current Doom, but my understanding is that they pushed further in that direction. That he, I don't know, he took over for Iron Man or something for a while or something. Yeah, but every uh, time but, he's a hero, it's for selfish reasons. And that's like the way he sort of maintains. Yeah, and, and that works. I think this is a much more straightforward, like he does something good. He rescues his mother that is unambiguously good. Uh, there is no, I mean, he makes Strange look stupid, but I think mm -hmm. the nice thing about Strange's character is that we can root for that sometimes too, that uh, it's nice to see Strange get taken down a peg every now and yeah, then. That's, uh, that's one of the appeals <laughs> of the defenders. But I mean, it's so successful the way it walks that line, right? Because Doom does do yeah. something good. He does it for, although it's good for his mother, it is completely selfish as well. Like he wants to feel like a big man by rescuing his mother. And that has to be part of it because that's so much a part of his identity. And I have no question that he definitely would have sacrificed Dr. Strange to the effort if that had been part of the plan that would have worked and that didn't happen oh, yeah. to be part of the plan. So Strange survived. So, I mean, it's, it's, perfect for walking that for doing that sort of it's not an anti-hero thing necessarily it's like it's like an anti-villain thing or something where he's more purely villain and yet the ways that we sympathize with him are so purely selfish and that fits his character so it's not a redemption arc in that way maybe that's sort of closer to what i was trying to get at before well maybe just to drill down on that a little bit what wouldn't you think of the idea of him essentially sacrificing his mother's love in order to save his mother do you know what i mean and, and he's like callousness or sociopathy sort of his superpower in that context are, are we meant to read that as him making a sacrifice or does he just not care which wouldn't make a lot of sense since he's going through all this effort he cares but i mean it's really hard not to read it in a freudian way in the sense yeah. that it confirms <laughs> his absolute perfection of his masculinity to be rejected by his mother i mean it kind of is another case where that's sort of suiting his purposes even though it is painful but the pain is something he planned for and something he cultivates i mean you have that scene earlier in the comic where doom cares not for pain right and we're like oh but maybe he does care for i mean you know that's like oh <laughs> And also, I think he really means that because he kind of gets off on that. Uh, this isn't totally consistent with Doom in all cases, but to a certain extent, one of the purposes that leaving Strange alive is that he gets an audience. Yeah, yeah. That he doesn't, his sacrifice doesn't have to go unknown, that he gets to show off how good he, how awesome he is. Yeah, there's something assertive about that in front of the Sorcerer Supreme too, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's... I don't think it's outright stated, but it's definitely implied that he threw the competition in order to set this in motion, right? 
I think so. Yeah, I think so too. That's the great thing about Doom because he's mysterious. You can just ascribe all of the, oh, he had it all figured out all along. And I mean, he's a guy that's got a time machine. Who knows how much he's got figured out in advance? Yeah, and I, I think in general, when we talk about media, like um, the Sherlock Holmes TV show and all that, one of my frequent complaints is that you have these characters who are supposed to be smart, but I can usually guess where the story is going mm. or that the twist is a massive contrivance that doesn't really make sense. This is a good twist. This is Doom playing the chess pieces very, very well. And we knew it was coming. We knew something was coming. Um, but this felt satisfying to me, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think that what really works about the twist is that you think he had a hero turn, and then you find out that he didn't. And that's like yeah. the twist, right? <laughs> Because it's like, it's not just one twist. There's like four twists in this comic. And, you know, yeah. you're sort of expecting like, oh, man, Doom did this good thing. And then you realize like, oh, no, he was just like playing human chess to achieve this. And even though, once again, he saved his mother's soul at the cost of her love, he was also okay with that because the performance of that and being renounced sort of feeds into his own narrative about himself. So it, it's so selfish. And so, you know, like he, he turns back into a villain at the end, but still a more complex villain, right? Okay, so as we've already talked about already, we, we've got a, a sort of, um, I don't know, buddy cop mentality going through both of these texts in, in very strange ways. Um, with Dr. Affer, who, as we mentioned, is a major breakout character for Marvel's Star Wars franchise, maybe the only real breakout character for Marvel's Star Wars franchise, depending on who you talk to. Uh, and then we've got the iconic Doctor Strange um, along for the ride with Doctor Doom. Um, so I guess the, the very simple question is, is what these characters do? How do they ground the narrative? Maybe we've touched on this a little bit already, but I think Afra is a, is a good place to start on this. What do you see as her sort of function here in terms of Doom's characterization or just like the general thrust of the narrative, Michael? The clearest, I think, is that she's uh, the closest thing we have to a POV character that we are meant to see, even though she, I think it's second or third issue before she comes in, she is meant to be the character that we kind of understand or that kind of grounds Vader's actions in a more human sphere. There's also the obvious like contrast between her crew and the rebel crew, that even though we do not get the main crew anywhere in the first few issues of this, we still get a very clear echo of them. And I think that helps, again, ground the series in terms of, oh, we got this shadow team. What are they gonna do to, or how do they compare to the kind of stereotypes that we're familiar with? It also sets up a bit of Vader, at least minorly, as kind of the chess master, which raises our esteem of him. And I think she's a necessary introduction because we know so much of how this story is already going to turn out, mm. that you need some investment in a character whose fate isn't as sealed if it's going to be anything than just kind of repeating the tragedy or arc of the, of the of Vader character. Mm -hmm. That makes Someone a lot of for sense. whom the choices matter, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. She's an interesting character in the ways that she's modulating Vader, as you said. And also, I mean, I, I don't want to say giving him a hero turn, but I mean, there's an important moment where she's like, I know you're going to kill me now, and he decides not to. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, it's dangerous to ascribe anything to that. I mean, obviously, he might just be keeping her alive for selfish reasons because she's very useful, but that's still an important sort of moment of depth for him. So that's like a way that she's sort of enabling some of that depth. But her own lack of morality is really interesting. And I can't help but wonder if that's part of what fans responded to in that character. Like, I was really thinking that she would be a hated character just because she's a new, super capable female character within this franchise. But I'm like, she's, she's... a doctorate. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but I mean, her immorality and fandom of Vader, is that part of why she would succeed where a character like Rey attracted so much hatred? I think if you put her in a film, that hatred comes back. Yeah, maybe, maybe. And we may see that happen, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I shouldn't assume that the fan base for sort of the comics in the extended universe is the same necessarily as the fan base for the films. Well, maybe to, to pin down Afra just a little bit more, um, Michael, you mentioned this sort of inversion of the traditional Star Wars dynamic. How far is Afra from Han Solo? Like, how much well, is she a dark Han Solo? I think she's the interesting one because it's not entirely clear. Is she the dark Leia? Is she the dark Luke? Is she the mm -hmm. dark... I think she's a bit of all, all three, and we kind of see that in the arc where the, the crossover arc where they she kind of joins their side for a little bit. Yeah, I think she skews a little more closer to Han. And I, in, in that sense, I think gives some actual rogueness that the actual Han never did that we kind of promised. Oh, like yeah. the promise of the Han character is that he is this like gray hat rogue. But we don't actually see that. Yeah, well, I guess we see that in that one instance, yes. Uh, <laughs> but in general, like she is the actual crafty, like I'm gonna I'm gonna pull a fast one on you and come out with all the money kind of character that he promises but doesn't quite deliver. Oh yeah, she yeah. seems she reads she reads as way more morally like ambiguous than Han Solo has ever read to me, definitely. But she's not like she still has a contrast with her like party members to an extent. Like she will absolutely let someone die instead of her, but I don't think she'd go as far as to like torture humans for fun, though she would let someone else do it. <laughs> well, she she like resurrected a robot that does that for a job knowing oh, that, yeah, she would absolutely. Do that on a record. <laughs> so I mean she the distinction there is a bit blurry. She has absolutely no morals in terms of what job she's taking she would not pull the trigger herself, mm. which is maybe not, maybe that's even more of a cowardly thing than a moral thing, but it's a, a bit more of a gray area. And I think that, I think that gives something to the character. To what extent mm. is she a fan surrogate character? I mean, cause she's, she's a fan of Vader. I mean, that is like yeah. one of her roles within the narrative. And I was curious about the way the character functioned on that level, because I saw her kind of as this character that's ricocheting through the Star Wars universe, kind of nihilistically appreciating the wonder of this universe and then sort of moving on to the next thing and just doing what she wants to do. Like as though she's playing in this space without real consequence because she's chosen to ignore consequence. Absolutely. She gets to be the, and you see this even more when she interacts with the good guys, that she gets to be the character who can stir things up in dynamics that we're a lot more familiar with otherwise. And in that sense, she has that kind of fanish quality. Well, what happens if we push on this part? Well, maybe switching over to, to, to Dr. Doom here. Um, 
you've got Doctor Strange with him. This is very intuitive in the sense that we're talking about, you know, mysticism and hell and magic and even some like iconic Doctor Strange villains. But I would argue that this could be a Silver Surfer story or a Fantastic Four story if the writer was willing to jump through just a few more hoops. Um, is Doctor Strange bringing anything more to this story than just, you know, being context appropriate to you, Anna? Is there something special about Strange as Doom's compatriot here? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I definitely <laughs> could see this as a Silver Surfer story. I mean, the difference would be Silver Surfer is a little bit like more emotional and not as thoughtful as Strange, so it would be a little bit different, but... I think you could do this story with a lot of different characters. He's just sort of a convenient character to send up, like to set up the magical context. I think you could rewrite this story with say magic from the X-Men and it would be uh, more fun. I think she'd learn a lot at this point in her character history and that would be fun too. Um, what I found really interesting, especially when it recounted Doom's origin is that it moves away from the Fantastic Four and it's a deliberate distancing I yeah, think yeah well one origin thing that I just we have to point out I found it very jarring how there's like a panel where we see his face early yes. in the comic yeah and I was like what the hell is this I was really confused <laughs> by that because I mean it's it's usually like a rule in comics that we don't see his face and we don't know the true nature of like what his scarring was you know was it a tiny scar was his face horribly scarred and different writers and artists have done different things for it over the year but it's still very strange to just see his face and it wasn't a dramatic reveal it was almost just incidentally visible and i was like what the hell was that was that an accident or i thought that was very strange yeah it, it does both it gives him he got a minor scar and he got a major scar when he put mm. the mask on too quickly it's just weird though i just didn't i it really is. found that choice strange because if you are going to show his face it should either be super dramatic or it would be so easy to just put a shadow across the face so that you're not sure. I, I just didn't understand that visual choice. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think for me, it was about humanizing Doom, sort of setting the tone for that larger project of the narrative. I didn't have a huge problem with it, but I'm not as invested in, in Dr. Doom as a character, personally. It really bothered me. I think if I like picked the <laughs> thing that I am most critical of in the comic, it was like those two panels where we see his face. It really bothered me. I was like, this was a dumb creative decision that made the story less complicated, and I really didn't like it. All right, so in terms of effect, it sets up at the beginning that it is his arrogance which led him to the mask, mm -hmm. that like it is a very minor flaw, and maybe that's kind of to prime us to thinking of him as overly arrogant and not properly thinking forward so that when the re reveal happens, it's more effective. But it is absolutely against the established kind of, this is how you do doom. That like, no, we, the, the ambiguity of his face is often an important part of the character. But isn't that maybe the foreshadowing as well, saying that we're going to be doing something different here? Totally. Yeah. Just, I don't know. I just think that if that was going to be the point, the reveal of his face should have been dramatic instead of incidental, mm, which yeah. is how it turned yeah. on the page. I mean, that's what kind <laughs> yeah, of bothers me. I'm like, if we are changing the context of this character and like doing the thing where like, no, officially he only had the small scar and it wasn't a big deal or like whatever, then that needs to be a huge reveal of his face. You know, like, I mean, think about the the storyline that you mentioned, Michael, you know, the the bendis my leave story where he becomes iron man and we do see him like take off his mask and reveal his face it's a huge dramatic splash page right like because that's a really important moment yeah. and it's recognized as such we got so off track of the question i think we were supposed to be talking about <laughs> dr strange and like whether he's like a good foil in this story or not oh, I mean... oh yeah okay um <laughs> i think he helps like 
he sets up the other part of the context. Like we are set up to believe that Doom has taken on more than he can chew. And it sets that up by, oh, he lost the magic fight. And oh, he's not as good with magic. And in that sense, Strange works as a pick because he reinforces this is an area where Doom's mastery isn't as complete. Mm. But, that's, you know, the true. reveal is actually Doom knows what he's doing better than uh, Strange does. Yeah, yeah, but it works as a team up because you have that thing where it balances their capabilities and it does so much heavy explaining of like, no, the reason that Doom can even sort of compete with Strange is that he's kind of cheating by using science. So Strange still is a certain power level in magic and Doom is not eclipsing that. Like it's total like, you know, <laughs> like Marvel trading card, like, you know, like <laughs> game logic, right? Of like making yeah. sure that we know who's powerful in what ways and sort of incorporating that into the story so that we're not like messing with that and it did that very well i thought but the more that you're talking about it michael i am thinking like there is a function of strange being the one in this story because if it was silver surfer someone who's just gifted power in this moment of sacrifice he's not someone who worked on his power who worked on the craft of his power and he would have a different sort of connotation in that story versus strange who is someone like doom who practices right who you know his magic is a craft and you know even before he's the sorcerer supreme he's a doctor right so he can compete with sort yeah. of dr doom on that level right and yeah. it lets them bypass all of the like history and back rivalry that if reed richards had been involved say yeah, yeah. I, I think that reading really works just in the sense that so much about what's redeemable about dean in this story is just showing his determination mm -hmm. and making you you know respect that if nothing else a huge part of the story is them going and hanging out at the castle for like weeks and training together, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, like a montage. Part of the story. I know, I know. And I'm like, man, like we need a story just filling in how all of those days went. I mean, they're like eating <laughs> breakfast and lunch and dinner together every day, playing cards. How did that go? Okay, so related to our discussion of um, the sort of visual choices, um, we have two pretty iconic comics artists working in these franchises in very different settings. We've got LaRocca, who is known as this sort of dynamic, bombastic, maybe not the best narrative storyteller visually, um, but every image he draws is going to look beautiful and it's going to look like a poster. He's doing the sci-fi universe, the, the spaceships and laser swords and all that kind of stuff. And on the other side of that, we have Mike Mignola, who Anna points out is not quite at Hellboy level yet. Uh, and Hellboy level is, we should point out, um, an amazing level to achieve. It's, it's <laughs> like the ultimate. Um, so he's doing Hell. Uh, he's doing all this mystical stuff with very sort of um, familiar Mignola tropes, such as very surreal, um, uh, emotionally impactful imagery. Um, I don't know. I, I don't need to, to make this too focused a question. Um, how do you feel the, the visual artists here are contributing to these stories? I find LaRocca's work here to be, like, as you said, like the iconic bits are very iconic. Uh, considering how much of Vader is silence, uh, although I suppose you could put in the breathing sound effects everywhere, but that would probably... Uh... Anyway, um, <laughs> yes, uh, he is... It, it does the Vader doesn't say anything pose, like, incredibly well like and the like setting up the visual of a scene like the robot factory or something again very attractive but i often had a hard time 
following what the action was actually supposed to be doing. Like there's a sequence where he throws his lightsaber at a ship and it's like, I get what happened if I sit down and go through it a few times, but it just doesn't flow otherwise. I had the exact same feeling, Michael. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think credit where credit is due, as Michael says, right? Like he's trying to do an expressive character who doesn't talk much, and that character yeah. is wearing a mask. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you're still getting a sense of his emotional state, roughly, uh, and the gravity of each individual situation. Right. The, framing of the, panel. the other characters in this are an R2D2 type unit that also does not does not even have a face. A 3PO. Uh, 3PO who has limited, of, I mean, Afra again, is the only character that can be super expressive in that way. He does such great things. So I was really thinking about how he communicated emotion through Vader. And it is through things like he'll fragment his body, sort of focusing on, you know, his boots or legs and making you think about his disability or it'll be sort of angles you know looking up at him versus looking down at him versus isolating him in the frame and then the thing that he does so well is the different ways that they use reflections in his eyepieces you know like Mm -hmm. either the reflection of an explosion or you can even have something like white light reflecting down that can like evoke tears or sadness you know it does a little bit of the spider-man mask thing where it's like the eye shape it doesn't change but it's still that kind of idea where you're communicating a lot just by what you're showing reflecting in those eyepieces and that's such a wonderful metaphor too you know he's so distanced from the world so you just see the outside world reflecting on his mask right and that's how he's responding to the world through this veil and the slow pullback to the like cracked window pane when he finds out uh, finally finds out about luke like that is such a great scene probably the highlight of this arc Mm -hmm. and again it's it's a slow like pulling back that is really effective I thought a lot about the cinematicness of it in terms of this being, you know, a comic adaptation of a film, right? And what is it trying to achieve? And, you know, we're used to filling in the gaps in comics, but this is also a case in which, you know, it reminded me a little bit of what you kind of do in fan fiction, where you're relying so much on, I already know what these characters look like. I already know how this story works. So you can sometimes tell a very sketchy story and not provide those details because Mm -hmm. you don't have to. And so having a sense of sort of the visual texture of these films, like, there's so much that you can do with just having iconic scenes and you can piece them together into how they would work in a movie, especially with his skill at sort of doing these cinematic landscapes, as you've mentioned, Michael. And I found that very effective. Like this really was an effective style for doing an adaptation of a film. Yeah. I think we can see that even just in the orientation of the panels, Uh, the the Mm -hmm. basic draftsmanship, he's doing unconventional things. He's clearly creating a visual language for star Wars. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And again, that, that, that's to his credit. Uh, as Michael and I said, there are times in which it's literally hard to follow what's happening. That is a traditional knock against LaRocca, but there's a trade-off there that I think we have to acknowledge. I have to say one other thing about LaRocca, which is that I actually have an interesting history with his art where one of the first, I think the first trade paperback I bought when I first started to get into comics in a serious way in my sort of early 20s was Iron Man Extremis, which he draws and I loved that comic so much. I haven't revisited it in like a decade, so don't ask me whether it holds up. 
but I really, really loved that comic. And it was the cinematicness of his style that I think made it more palatable to me as a relatively new comics reader at that time. And I remember having it with me on like a train ride and sort of an older man was sitting next to me, sort of looking over my shoulder at the comic. And he was like, huh, I didn't know comics looked like that now. And, you know, he's clearly responding to that cinematicness, right? Because it's sort of like that thing of like, well, I didn't know video games look like that now. They don't look like 8-bit games anymore. They look like movies, right? And this is a comic that looks like a movie, you know, in the level of detail and in his even just cinematic approach to action. And there's a specific page that I remember looking at and thinking, and this is really, this is kind of crazy. Like, I remember really thinking about this page and thinking, I want to study comics. And it was this page where... Iron Man, like in his Iron Man suit, is like falling through space. And so keep in mind that I was a relatively new comics reader at this time, because this is not like a super unique effect or anything. But it was one of those splash pages where he's falling um, sort of through space, his powers weren't working or something. And then it was a silent page, right? So it's like this moment in which a super body is suspended in space in silence. And it's an action scene, but not. And just thinking yeah. about all the different ways that sort of time and space are manipulated there and how it's not like a movie, how it's not like any other art form, despite having that cinematic quality. I really had like a transcendent moment with that page of like, I want to figure out what this is and why it works and why it's so affecting. So I really, I have an interesting kind of yeah context for his art. It's not like I'm his hugest fan, but I definitely have a fondness for it in terms of its place in my heart from when I was first getting into comics. Yeah, I think I have um, a similar um, touched on point with LaRocca. Um, um, his Extreme X-Men is what got me reading X-Men comics again as an adult. Oh, yeah. Because looking at it, I had the same reaction as the old man, which which is, wow, X-Men didn't look like that before. Mm-hmm. And it lured me in. And, and after a while, I was a little disappointed because of the narrative element. But as I said, I, I don't always find is there. But um, all the like good moments, and I'm thinking specifically of like um the, the death of Psylocke, like those images are locked in my brain mm-hmm. uh, because of how you know, distinctive and iconic they are. And I think there's a lot of people who've you know, probably read Darth Vader and, and, and like exactly as you said, Anna, they're, they're having that same reaction. This is uh, iconic Vader imagery. We've already seen that on the internet. There's no shortage of LaRocca's Vader um, being out there and just sort of examples of this is awesome comics stuff or awesome Darth Vader stuff making the rounds. His style is particularly good for machinery too. Like, I mean, I think he's just SF, perfect, for yeah, an, perfect for an Iron Man book and he's perfect for a Star Wars Vader book. Yeah, I think that tracks. I mean, now we've got Mignola doing Hell. I, 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 mm-hmm. Touchstone. I think Hellboy in Hell is the most beautifully rendered comic in human history. Uh, I, I will rep that book. Um, here we have early Mignola representing Hell with some, you know, iconic Marvel characters in it. Yeah, it's weird to see him in this kind of interstitial phase where I think yeah. he looks more like Mignola sort of toward the end of the book where he gets to be a little bit more abstract. But seeing him sort of trying to do faces and emotion is weird. <laughs> because I just think about his Hellboy universe and how... You know, he obviously is more comfortable focusing on sort of Hellboy or Abe or like non-human characters. Or if he is going to do, you know, a character like Liz Sherman, she's going to be sort of very abstract, right? That's just what he wants to draw. And sort of seeing him try to do some of these quiet character moments with facial expressions, I was almost like, just don't bother. Just just do your thing. I don't even care about this. But definitely when he gets to those demon fights or something, that's when you really see him excel. But I was definitely missing you know, it just doesn't have that cleanness of his of his later style. You can still see the inventiveness and the skill and just the visual dynamism, but you're missing too, you know, the 
who is it that does the colors for the Hellboy comics? Is it Dave Stewart? That sounds right. I think so. I think so. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a famous colorist, and you know, just you just wish that this was rendered in those vibrant colors a lot of the time. I'm just like, ooh, this would be so nice with those colors instead mm-hmm. of the sort of muted watercolory palette that we have here. So in in both of these instances, we have major retcons of iconic characters um, and and stories that I think, I mean, mean, maybe the door's still open on Vader. I kind of don't think it is. I I think it's already locked in as it's going to be an iconic Darth Vader storytelling touchstone this series. And we know already that this Doctor Doom, Doctor Strange team up is an iconic Doctor Doom story. Um, My question is, how do these stories fit in the broader mythology surrounding those characters? They're obviously making some choices. What are the end results of those choices? How do we react to this particular blip in the continuity of these characters? I think with Doom, the problem that people have run into him in modern eras as a character is that he went from being kind of, you know, a goofy, hyper-emotional Fantastic Four villain mm-hmm. into being almost an omnipotent godlike character who even if he fails you assume it was all a plan in part because of stories like this where that's the case and so it's difficult to know how to use him in stories sometimes that way i mean i was thinking he showed up you know within the context of the hellfire gala recently and he was handled quite well there by al ewing but at the same time it's like the mysticism around this character and sort of the again omnipotence around this character it sometimes makes it difficult to sort of fear that he is ever not in control and that can be a problem sometimes because i mean what are you actually competing against when you're competing against doom you just assume that he's Mm -hmm. got it figured out anyway and that if you're competing against him it's something he wanted you to do anyway and so there's like a little bit of like a stagnant likeness there Mm -hmm. with doom but at the same time that can be super fun because you know knowing that he might already have all the answers and that he is like impossible to completely understand because of his omnipotence is also a fun gimmick. So yeah, I don't know. I don't have like a, a surefire answer to that, but it's definitely an important turning point in in terms of turning him into that, into that more omnipotent character and like definitively turning away from that over emotional villain that he'd been before. I mean, that had already happened in comics. Like, I mean, that had been happening since the seventies and it was part of secret wars. So this wasn't completely new, but it's certainly one of the definitive moments in which he forever turns away from that goofier beginning. I mean, again, this is something that started before this point, but it really does set him apart from the Fantastic Four trappings. Mm. This is not a story about a Fantastic Four villain. This is a story about Doom. Yeah. And that the fact that he can be this platform for other characters, I think he works best as a platform for other characters to tell stories, but it shows that like he's not limited to just this rivalry with Richards, that there are more expansive things that you can do with him and have him do. Well, he, he's a cosmic character at this point, right? Oh, yeah. So he's a character yes, that I mean, happens if, to be located on Earth, and yet he's definitely part of the Marvel cosmic universe. Yeah, if anything, at this point, it's almost too far the other direction. Mm-hmm. But yeah, <laughs> uh, you can always go, it's a Doombot. So I guess that's <laughs> where I know. 
Which, you know, you, you got to love about this character because he's so he exists outside of all logic, right? I mean, he literally does. I mean, he com his, com his combination of science and magic means he exists outside of all logic because anything that can't be explained with science can be explained with magical augmentation. So you don't have to explain anything with Doom. And I think if you like Doom, you like that about the character. If you find him a frustrating character, you're not going to like that about the character. But that is the essence of the character. And that's something that we see on full display here with that interaction of science and magic. Yeah, I really like that idea. I, I, th I think maybe for me, one of the most important things that comes out of this is this. It's just it's a treasure trove of Doom lore. And as Anna already talked about, like it can go either way. However, you want to read Doctor Doom, there's things here that you can latch on to. Um, so I, I think it's it's cultivating the complexity of the character without necessarily defining the character, and I, I think that that really is a difficult balancing act. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because as much as we do get the revelation of the twist, and it's heavily implied that he set all that stuff up, that's actually not set in stone. It's entirely yeah. possible that he wasn't in control of it. And so there is that still indecision about this character that I think is very effective. Because is it just his act of knowingness and stoicism that makes us think he has everything under control? Or is that a big act for the fact that he doesn't have everything under control? And that's a really interesting dynamic with this character. Okay, so channeling this in the other direction then, um, obviously starting with Michael, you talked about paratexts earlier on. Um, yep. How does this Vader fit into the you know iconography of Darth Vader for you? I mean, obviously there's going to be more Darth Vader stories, but we might not get another Darth Vader featuring movie. Like the, the big feature is set and you're kind of filling in the gaps, which I think changes the kind of stakes to a certain extent. I think what this series really gives is a continuity between the film trilogies and some interiority to Vader, mm -hmm. uh, at least in this era specifically, that I think they've done a lot of work to give Anakin, I mean, again, go watch six years of Clone War cartoons, that they've done a lot with Anakin, uh, but like it gives what, what was Vader's motivation in this particular era besides what we see in the films? That he's seen as this character, this kind of almost void or presence that everyone else responds to, that to give him a role as to his own motivations, I think that expands at least him and gives us a, a different look. Um, I think you could having read these comics, go back and go, all right, I understand at least one facet of the political machinations of the empire a little better. And I don't know if that's something anyone really needs, <laughs> uh, but it is there if you want it until uh, Disney decides that these comics don't count either. I don't think I'm qualified to say since I'm just not a Star Wars nerd enough, but I did like some of the elements of this comic and it wasn't something we really talked about, but some of the more science fiction-y elements of this comic, because part of the reason I don't like Star Wars as well as I might is because it's not that science fiction-y really. And there was some sort of weird science elements yeah. and stuff like, I mean, stuff like the, the, you know, bug queen who rebuilds the droids into her being her babies and stuff. I just, that really is science fiction-y in a way that I found satisfying. And I would really love to see some of that stuff in the main movie Star Wars, Star Wars texts. I think from my perspective, I, my problem with this is trying to read it continuously from episode four to episode five. Mm -hmm. And it does feel like a different character. 
but I really like this character, maybe even more so than I like the character in the movies. So I like I don't know. As an act well, of continuity, it's not there for me, but as an act of, you know, cool samurai robot guy in the future, um, I'm on board. Well, I think the really weird thing about it as a text is that it's not meant to be read in between, but after all yeah. of those things. Okay, so the last thing we need to do before announcing our next topic is to just, um, as we're in the habit of doing, get some recommendations for related texts. Um, I will start by being lazy and just recommending Hellboy in Hell. If you want to see a, a really stunning portrayal of Hell that's sort of in the same vein here, but very much not in the same vein at all, um, Mike Mignola's Hellboy in Hell is, as I said, the most beautiful comic I think I've ever looked at. Its sense of stillness and silence and loneliness and isolation um, it is maybe my defining vision of hell, even over like a Gustave Dore. It's it's really, really beautiful. Um, and I think it, it adds a lot in conversation to this depiction of hell. I have a dual pick. Uh, first, Cor Paul Cornell and Pete Woods run on Action Comics, where they let uh, Lex Luthor take the reins for about a 10-issue arc. Uh, it has a really nice culmination that I think uh, it culminates in, well, I won't spoil that, but it wraps up satisfyingly, let's say. <laughs> and uh, second, I feel like it's a lesser known series, um, the limited series Osborne, uh, which took place um, more or less shortly after his Dark Reign wrapped up. Uh, this is by Kelly Soon DeConnick and Emma mm -hmm. Rios. And the subtitle of the series is it's him in prison, and the subtitle of the series is Evil Incarnate, Incarcerated. So, yeah. I'm going to be a total dick and recommend <laughs> the um, the trade paperback version of, of, of Dr. Triumph and Torment, because that's the version that I read, and it included some excellent extras, including Marvel Fanfare 16 and 43, which are two Namor stories drawn by Magnola and written by Bill Madlow. And both of them were excellent. In Marvel Fanfare number 16, Namor has like an extended, you know, everybody knows the famous Ditko Spider-Man sequence where he's like, got to push up the heavy thing in the rain or, you know, with all the water pouring in, not the rain. Um, this is like that for Namor, except his huge burden is that he's trying to keep a majestic white stallion alive in the middle of a thunderstorm by like swimming along with it and it is really tragic and heartbreaking and it's like actually really moving and i won't tell you how it turns out but you know it mostly has a happy ending but like there's a little bit of a twist but and then marvel fanfare number 43 another namor story he kind of like goes through a portal in an abandoned ship and ends up back in time and falls immediately in love with this really awesome pirate queen and just becomes her sexy consort. And there's a lot of sexy scenes of him just like lying around in her bed surrounded by jewels. And it's amazing. And then he just at the end of the story, like walks back through the portal and is back in reality. And it's just like, huh, well, that was fun. Just classic <laughs> Namor story. It just, I like, yeah fell held over heels in love with Namor again. And there's also a really zany Doctor Strange story, Doctor Strange 57 um, with art. I think it's uh, Jerry Conway and art by 
Oh, I was just looking at it. I should know that off the top of my head. It was Kevin Nolan on art. So the art's really great too. And it was just a real wacky story involving um, Nightcrawler's foster sister and foster mother who like <laughs> kind of get manipulated by this magic wand and show up to battle Doctor Strange. And it doesn't make any sense in continuity, <laughs> but that was like another like sort of fun dip into Doctor Strange's very pulpy world. So yeah, definitely. If you haven't checked out the trade paperback version of this comic, it is worth it. Lots of fun extras. Awesome. All right. Um, so last thing to do, um, um, our next episode will be on um, Astro City, The Tarnished Angel by Busick and Ross, as well as Criminal Volume 6, Last of the Innocent by Brubaker and Phillips. We hope you'll tune in for that. My thanks to the panel. It's been too long. Uh, and we'll see you next month.